Edward Baptiste, a history professor at Cornell University, is the author of a powerful book published a few years ago titled The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery in the Making of American Capitalism. When I first heard the buzz growing about this book, I only vaguely knew that it was about the U.S. Civil War, and my first thought, honestly, was skeptical. How is it possible with all of the books and all of the films and all of the speakers um, about the Civil War that half the story has never been told. But after uh, continuing to hear people um, appreciating his work, I finally read it and I'm certainly willing to grant that he is at least correct that important pieces of the story have rarely been told or perhaps more uh, often intentionally ignored. I was not surprised to learn that Baptiste grew up in the South, specifically in North Carolina. I grew up in South Carolina, and I suspect that he too was raised uh, hearing a particular spin on the Civil War as particularly about uh, states' rights and individual liberty. But the more you learn about history, the harder it is to maintain with integrity these romanticized notions about the lost cause of the Old South. If any doubt remained about the vital importance of addressing this topic today, yet more evidence was provided a few weeks ago. I was about halfway through reading Baptiste's book, and headlines began breaking about members of the Trump administration unintentionally proving Baptiste's point for him and apparently going out of their way to write my sermon for me. Uh, just showing that we have collectively rarely told our history well or honestly, particularly in regard to racial justice. On Halloween, and I don't think he meant this to be spooky scary, it would have been nice if it had been sort of a Halloween joke, it was not. Uh, On Halloween, White House Chief of Staff General John Kelly criticized the removal of Confederate monuments as rooted in, quote, a lack of appreciation for history and of what history is. He then ironically proceeded to demonstrate his own historical ignorance by saying, quote, the lack of an ability to compromise led to the Civil War, and that men and women of good faith on both sides, which has become a particularly loaded phrase, uh, made their stand where their conscience had them make their stand. He proceeded to dig the hole still deeper by calling Confederate General Robert E. Lee an honorable man and saying it was uh, loyalty to the state first in those days. To say that the lack of ability to compromise led to the Civil War is either profoundly or willfully ignorant about all of the horrific compromises that paved the road to the Civil War, not the least of which was the Three-Fifths Compromise, the deep racial injustice inked into Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3 of the United States Constitution that helped build our, um, consti- build our nation on the um, compromise of counting enslaved human beings as three-fifths of all other persons. Now, no one is actually saying that Lee should be erased from the history books, but we do need to be honest that he was not a national hero. He was a white supremacist, he was a slave owner, and after the Civil War, he passively supported the Ku Klux Klan's um, racist um, domestic terrorism through his refusal to denounce them publicly, even when he was repeatedly asked to do so. We're more than a century and a half past the point at which it should be clear to all that Lee fought on the wrong side of history. And 
we, it's, I just can't pretend that we don't need to talk about this this morning. Uh, I spent seven years prior to coming to this congregation. One of, one of the two congregations I served previously was in Monroe, Louisiana. And just blocks from my apartment and then later my house was a middle school where young people were being formed educationally in northeast Louisiana. That was Robert E. Lee Middle School. Just over the river, just a mile or so away, was West Monroe High School. Their mascot was the Rebels. It was not until 2015 that it came to a head that maybe people shouldn't be all bringing the Confederate flag to football games. Maybe that's not a good idea. What is that saying about who we're trying to be? It's not a mistake that the Charlottesville rally, where all that violence, where Heather Heyer died, that that was the white supremacist rally, that was precisely over the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee. So as someone who spent the first three decades of my life in the South, I can attest that the reason Lee is seen by some as a saint is a decades-long propaganda campaign to whitewash history that I was um, very privy to and, and tried to be formed by. Uh, uh, so, and I'll limit myself to only one among many examples of how we should do, how we should do and should have done things differently. In 1935, the Virginia-born historian Douglas Freeman won the Pulitzer Prize in history for his four-volume biography about Lee, and that was the definitive history of Lee, considered to be that for decades. The trouble is that book was less responsible history and much more hagiography, a biography that idealizes its subject. Our nation would be much better off if the Pulitzer Prize that year had been awarded to another book published in 1935 by the African-American author and activist Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. His landmark book, Black Reconstruction in America, still worth revisiting. In that book, he clearly identifies slavery as the fundamental cause of the war and reconstruction as a radical democratic experiment that was noble in its intentions but that was tragically undermined by white supremacists. Uh, That book by Du Bois was ignored at the time by mainstream scholars, but today Du Bois' insights are now taken for granted by most historians, uh, although they have not clearly fully penetrated our culture. But Du Bois was right then, and he is right now. Later, I urge you to Google W.E.B. Du Bois on Robert E. Lee and W.E.B. Du Bois on Confederate monuments. Almost a century ago, he was devastatingly insightful on both counts. that the war was clearly fought to perpetuate human slavery and that these monuments um, about uh, in the South are about attempts to whitewash history. There's so many historical records from the Confederacy that I could quote that testify explicitly that the motivation of the Confederacy was to perpetuate white supremacy. But rather than lift up those voices, I'll point instead to the words of President Abraham Lincoln who, though not perfect in many ways, represents the Republican Party at its best. In contrast to General Kelly's false equivalency about good faith on both sides, Lincoln's second inaugural address, one of the best orations from this country's history, very much worth revisiting, said clearly that both parties deprecated the war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And he said and war came. Lincoln continued with an honest recounting of the war's causes. He said at that time, one-eighth of our nation's population, four million people, were colored slaves, and they were not um, distributed generally across the Union. These slaves um, constituted a particular and powerful interest. And he says clearly, 
all knew that this interest was the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union. Now, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, Lincoln continued, that this mighty scourge of war might speedily pass away. Yet, and listen to his words in this next part, he speaks about all of the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil may be sunk. In highlighting all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil, we could say unpaid toil, Lincoln is pointing directly to one of the central points in Baptiste's book, The Half That Has Never Been Told. Baptiste debunks the myth that slavery was separate from the modern economy. That's what the the North tried to tell itself. It's this separate thing instead of inextricable. And that it was inevitably going to end. It was this uh, obsolete model compared to the North. These were the myths that the North told itself and the South sometimes as well. But the truth is that far from being a separate part of the economy, the profits from enslaved human beings picking cotton was a major factor in the crucial early decades of this country. That between the 1790s and the 1820s, the United States had a near monopoly um, on cotton, the world's most widely traded commodity at that time. Cotton drove U.S. expansion. It allowed our country to become from this, this narrow coastal belt. That's what we were when we were the 13 colonies. It was cotton that was the greatest catalyst to grow our economy to become the fastest growing economy in the world at that time. And in sharp contrast to the myth in the North that slavery was inevitably going to end, the South fought precisely to prefer Um, to protect the highly profitable business of exploiting human labor. It turns out then and now, exploiting labor is incredibly lucrative. The straightforward, though horrifying truth is that under the threat and practice of torture, enslaved people picked cotton faster and more efficiently than free people ever could or have. Many enslaved cotton pickers in the late 1850s, they picked about 200 pounds of cotton per day. 200 in the 1930s, so after the Civil War end, there was a massive investment in how do we do this technologically, what was formerly done through exploited human labor. So 50 years later, after a half century of massive scientific experimentation to make the cotton ball more pickable, cotton was um, picked then at around 100 or 120 pounds per day, so cut in about 50%. When that half of the story is not told, you get this false mythology about the noble lost cause of the Civil War as about states' rights and individual liberty. Instead of the tragic truth that the Civil War was fought to protect white supremacy and to perpetuate the highly profitable exploitation of human beings. When that half of the story is repressed, we set our nation up to fail at reconstruction in the decades following the Civil War, causing the need for a second reconstruction in the middle of the 20th century in the Civil Rights Movement, and the need now for a third reconstruction to overcome what Michelle Alexander has powerfully called the new Jim Crow, the insidious racial bias in our criminal justice system. If we had collectively been honest about slavery, if we'd had a truth and reconciliation process um, about slavery and economics as the major causes of the Civil War, then perhaps we could have been honest during Reconstruction and provided reparations for enslaved human beings for the huge profits that had been earned from their exploited labor. 
Indeed, after the Civil War, there are hundreds of examples of enslaved people refusing either to sign labor contracts or to leave plantations, insisting this land belongs to us. In some cases, freed people not only claimed to be joint heirs to the estate, but they, refu- but they abandoned the slave quarters and moved right into the main house. The most famous promise made along these lines was a plan to give people who had been enslaved 40 acres and a mule, so to take some of these plantation properties and divide them up. Tragically, almost none of these, prop- these um, possibilities fully came to pass. As the African-American theologian James Cone has said, 40 acres and a mule for my people, at this point I'd settle for an acre and a goat, but I'm not holding my breath. Now we can't change the past, but we have to ask ourselves seriously, what can each of us do in the present to help build a world of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all? In the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where do we go from here? Chaos or community? There are leaders in our country today who are intent on cynically exploiting fear and resentment to sow seeds of chaos and division, to pit us against one another. But there is a different way for each of us to look within our spheres of influence. Who do we know? Where do we work? What can we change to help in large and small ways to dismantle white supremacy, where only white people are in the room? And in the words of the UU activist Chris Crass, to build up a multicultural democracy with economic, gender, and racial justice for all. To build a world where the inherent worth and dignity of all people and the interconnection of life is at the heart of our culture, of our institutions, and of our policies. What are some ways at getting better at telling the half that has never been told? Some small ways include make, going out of your way to visit the um, new African American History Museum in D.C. If you haven't been there, or if you have, go again. Take your friends and family members. Uh, learn the story of our history better. If you haven't read ta Coates's new book, We Were Eight Years in Power, which uh, uh, very powerfully wrestles with the legacy of eight years of our um, first African-American president and where we are today, uh, I encourage you to read it. It was just named one of the top 100 books um, by the New York Times. Soon we'll be sharing more about an opportunity this spring to be part of a dismantling racism curriculum here at UUCF called Beloved Conversations. It'll start in late February with, an all, with a Friday night and all-day Saturday um, workshop followed by eight two-hour um, sessions. So I highly encourage you to be part of that um, if your schedule allows. Here at UUCF, there are already ways in which we're decades into being, in part, a multicultural congregation. And we each bring a diversity of experiences with us to this place in many different ways. But both here and in the world outside these walls, there is a longer journey that still beckons us onward, that still beckons us toward a deeper and a riskier love, a more honest and inclusive hope, a peace that is grounded in justice for all and an uninhibited childlike joy in which all of us can bring the fullness of ourselves here to this beloved community.
give you two quick final examples of how ripples of this continue to play out. So when you talk about, you know, who's controlling the narrative and which, which half of the story are we hearing, it has everything to do with how things like the, how Black Lives Matter banners are seen, right? To see that we need to say Black Lives Matter because it's black lives in this country in particular that historically have precisely not mattered or have only mattered in ways in which their bodies have been exploited. Uh, there's a powerful book published by our own uh, Beacon Press titled the, the Price of the Pound of Their Flesh, in which an um, African-American female um, historian has done a powerful analysis of, of how enslaved bodies were valued at birth and adolescence and adulthood, and, uh, and it's a uh, very powerful and sobering analysis. Uh, uh, so that, that's one example of how we see things like that. A second is keep your eye out on the Supreme Court case coming in June on, I believe it's called um, Masterwork Cake Baker versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Notice that latter half, uh, the Civil Rights Commission, right? That this, this very much is involved in which a couple went into a cake store, a gay couple, and um, wanted to buy cake for their wedding and refused service. They were, of course, horrified not just uh, in general, but specifically because one of their mothers was with them and had to witness them being uh, denied um, a cake. This is being presented as a matter of religious liberty as well as free speech. That is... Um, ridiculous, in my opinion. I would say particularly on religious liberty, not in my name as a religious leader. I'll tell you why. So we are a liberal religious tradition. That Latin word um, liberal comes from the root liber, meaning free. We are for freedom, but here is the uh, truth of that freedom on which this nation, this diverse nation is built at our best. So e pluribus unum, out of many, one. That liberal, The classic liberal compromise is what's called the public-private split, and that you do, you have your greatest freedom in private. It means whatever weird stuff you're into, do it in your bedroom, whatever, you know, it's your thing. Uh, But in public, you have to be tolerant. You have to live in the more cosmopolitan world that is reality. And it's it's that that classic phrase that your right to swing your fist ends when it hits my face, right? And that's what's going on in that cake shop. So it's not about what that person's religion is. You can believe bigoted things in your religious community if that's what you choose to do, but you don't get to do that in public. At least you don't if the spirit of liberalism wins, Uh, the true spirit of freedom for all and not just for some. So it's up to us to try to control the narrative and the spheres where we are. So how do you do that? What are the ways you can intervene? In, so instead of sowing seeds of fear and division, how can you think about the ways in the coming days and weeks that you can continue your journey in love? Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.